Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for coming. My name is Oluwashon Alaiwala, and I am a Leadbury Poetry Critic. Um, also, welcome to those of you who are tuning in from home, our audience online from around the world. Um, I also feel empowered to say welcome y'all, because we are in the presence of two American poets who have lived for so at some point in the South. Um, and lastly, I just want to say thank you to our principal funder, Arts Council England. So, our first reader this afternoon is Nicole Seeley. You may know Nicole Seeley as the author of the chapbook, The Animal After Whom Other Animals Are Named, winner of the 2015 Drinking Gourd Chapbook Prize, or as the author of Ordinary Beast, her debut poetry collection published in 2017, a finalist for the Penn Open Book Award and Hurston Wright Legacy Award. Or you may know Nicole Seeley as the first American to win the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem with an excerpt, excerpt of her long poem, The Ferguson Report, and Erasure, which also won the inaugural Granham Foundation Prize in 2021. Her other honors include an NEA Literature Creative Writing Fellowship, a 2019-2020 Rome Prize from the American Academy in Rome, and in the same year, a Princeton Hodder Fellowship. She's also had fellowships from Breadloaf's Writer Conference, Cantamundo, Cave Conum, McDowell Con Colony, and The Poetry Project. And if you're not entirely late to the party, like I was, you may know Nicole Seeley as the creator of the now famous Seeley Challenge, a challenge she started in 2017 while she was the executive director of Cave Conum. The Seeley Challenge invites participants to read a book of poetry every day for the entire month of August. I've accepted this challenge twice now. I have failed this challenge twice now. If after the reading today, you don't devour Ordinary Beast immediately, of which there are two copies at the back. And if you're considering taking the challenge next month, I implore you to add Ordinary Beast to your reading list. Publishers Weekly said this of Ordinary Beast. Seeley's elegant and elemental debut acts as a balm for and protecting against the hazards of modernity. Though her poems are very much in in and of the material world, Seeley's gift of attention and distillation resist any tendency towards superficial excess and distraction. I think this reviewer is highlighting the get-right-to-the-point nature Seeley's first lines can often have. Here's one. This time, this poem is the best idea I've ever had. Or another, as if God, despite his compulsions, were decent. Or perhaps the burned-into-my-head opening lines of Ordinary Beast, which are unceremonious not only for their placement, but their frankness. I've been pregnant. I've had sex with a man who's had sex with men. In an interview with the Paris Review, she says, though the process varies from poem to poem, the common denominators are the pace at which and method by which I write. I write slowly and line by line, end quote. One feels this sense of wholeness in each line, such that at every line break, it feels the poem could end there and nothing would be lost. Thus, line breaks become discursive. Every line break, a type of, and yet, have you considered, a type of, but suppose. The most accurate image I can think of to describe what happens to me when I read Nicole's work is that of a whirlpool circling inside a glass container a naturally occurring wildness inside a clean, crystalline form. Nicole skillfully captures the inherent chaos of life and the concomitant order needed to keep chaos from being the only reality. Sometimes the tension between chaos and order manifests as identity. The West in me wants the mansion to last. The African knows it cannot, says one poem as if it could disabuse itself of its westernness, as if diagnosis of the problem were also the cure. I'm not a crier, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say ordinary beasts stirred in me whatever emotional energy motivates tears to emerge through a face. 
I mean to say Nicole's work is fiercely visceral, invitingly cerebral, and unsteadies that endlessly research and yet somehow still ill-defined nexus between mind, body, and spirit. If Nicole's poems confer anything, they confer that in this nexus there is still language. Please join me in welcoming Nicole Seeley. Thank you for that very, very generous introduction. Um, thank you all for being here. Should I move this down? Is that okay? Better? Okay, yes, but I can hear it now. Thank you for being here. Thank you to the uh, festival organizers for the invitation and all the volunteers that are doing hard work, um, especially Peter who picked me up from the airport at like midnight and drove me to the hotel, got there around 1.30. 1 so everyone involved, thank you so much. And of course, Kevin, such a pleasure to read with you again. I think the last time was 2018. Yeah. Okay, poems, poems, poems. This first one is from my mom, and it's called The First Person Who Will Live to Be 150 Years Old Has Already Been Born. Scientists say the average human life gets three months longer every year. By this math, death will be optional, like a tie or dessert or suffering. My mother asks whether I'd want to live forever. I'd get bored, I tell her. But, she says, there's so much to do, meaning she believes there's much she hasn't done. Thirty years ago, she was the age I am now, but unlike me, too industrious to think about birds disappeared by rain. If only we had more time or enough money to be kept on ice until such a time, science could bring us back. Of late, my mother has begun to think life short-lived. I'm too young to convince her otherwise. The one and only occasion I was in the same room as the Mona Lisa, it was encased in glass behind what I imagine were velvet ropes. There's far less between ourselves and oblivion, skin that often defeats its very purpose. Or maybe its purpose isn't protection at all but rather to provide a place similar to a doctor's waiting room in which to sit until our names are called. Hold your questions until the end. Mother, measure my wide open arms. We still have this much time to kill. How y'all doing? You good? Good. I'll read medical history, um, which shown mentioned in the amazing introduction. Medical history. I've been pregnant. I've had sex with a man who's had sex with men. I can't sleep. My mother has, my mother's mother had asthma. My father had a stroke. My father's mother has high blood pressure. Both grandfathers died from diabetes. I drink, I don't smoke. Xanax for flying, propranolol for anxiety. My eyes are bad, I'm spooked by wind. Cousin Lily died from an aneurysm. Aunt Ilda, a heart attack. Uncle Ken, wise as he was, was hit by a car, as if to disprove whatever theory toward which I write. And I understand the stars in the sky are already dead. They don't get much happier than that, so <laughs> my apologies. 
hysterical strength. When I hear news of a hitchhiker struck by lightning yet living, or a child lifting a two-ton sedan to free his father pinned underneath, or a camper fighting off a grizzly with her bare hands until someone, a hunter perhaps, can shoot it dead. My thoughts turn to black people, the hysterical strength we must possess to survive our very existence, which I fear many believe is and treat as itself a freak occurrence. All right, this next poem was inspired by a work of art by Thomas Hirshhorn. And what it is is a group of mannequins wrapped in duct tape and lifted up on a wooden structure. So I saw that piece, and that piece in inspired this. And this poem takes its title from that work of art, and it's called Candelabra with Heads. Had I not brought with me my mind as it has been made, this thing, this brood of mannequins cocooned and mounted on a wooden scaffold might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping, might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand, might be a family tree with eight pictured frames. Such treaties occur in the brain. Can you see them hanging? Their shadow is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Skin shrinks and splits. The bodies weep fat the color of yolk. Can you smell them burning? Their perfume climbing as wisteria would a trellis. As wisteria would a trellis burning. Their perfume climbing fat the color of yolk. Can you smell them? Skin shrinks and splits, the bodies weep, is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Can you see them hanging, their shadow frames? Such treaties occur in the brain. Might be a family tree with eight pictured. Might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand. Might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping and mounted on a wooden scaffold, this brood of mannequins cocooned as it has been made, this thing, had I not brought with me my mind. Who can see this and not see lynchings? So this next poem is inspired by the one that I just read. Um, at the suggestion of uh, editors who I adore, I extracted the last line from the poem in my chat book. Um, who could see this and not see lynchings? Because um, I didn't know any better. And so for my full-length collection, I decided to include that last line in the poem, who can see this and not see lynchings. And this next poem is in defense of that impulse to include that line. That makes sense? Okay. Uh, what do you need to know? The animal in this poem refers to the chapbook, The Animal After Whom Other Animals Are Named, my chapbook. And it mentions Thomas, Thomas Hirshhorn, the uh, artist who made Candelabra with Heads. In defense of Candelabra with Heads. If you've read the Candelabra with Heads that appears in this collection and the one in the animal, Thank you. The original, the one included here, is an example, I'm told, of a poem that can speak for itself but loses faith in its ability to do so by ending with a thesis question. Yeats said a poem should click shut like a well-made box. I don't disagree. I ask who can see this and not see lynchings? Not because I don't trust you, dear reader, or my own abilities. I ask because the imagination would have us believe, much like faith, faith the original candelabra lacks in things unseen. 
You should know that human limbs burn like branches and branches like human limbs. Only after man began hanging man from trees, then setting him on fire, which would jump from limb to branch like a bastard species of bird, did we come to know such things. A hundred years from now, October 9, 2116, 8, 18 p.m., when all but the lucky are good and dead, may someone happen upon the question in question. May that lucky someone be black and so far removed from the verb lynch that she be dumbfounded by its meaning. May she then call up Hershorn's candelabra with heads. May her imagination, not her memory, run wild. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Y'all are sweet. Um, okay, next is Heretofore Unuttered, a shorter one so I can catch my breath. Heretofore Unuttered. As if God, despite his compulsions, were decent and hadn't the tendency to throw off all appearance of decorum. Here I am, admiring this single violet orchid. How lucky am I to go unnoticed, or so I imagine, when, at this writing, there's a red-tailed hawk somewhere tracking the soft shrills of newborn songbirds. Okay, even the gods. Even the gods misuse the unfolding blue. Even the gods misread the wind flowers nod towards sunlight as consent to consume. Still, you envy the horse that draws their chariot, bone of their bone. The wilting mash of air alone keeps you from scaling Olympus with gifts of dead or dying things dangling from your mouth, your breath like the sea inching away. It is rumored gods grow where the blood of a hanged man drips. You insist on being this man. The gods abuse your grace. Still, you'd rather live among the clear, cloudless white, enjoying what is left of their ambrosia. Who should be happy this time? Who brings cake to whom? Pray the gods do not misquote your covetous pulse for chaos, the black from which they were conceived. Even the eyes of gods must adjust to light. Even gods have gods. All right, just a few, 10, 5, 10. Oh, I got 15 minutes, I think. I think, can I add? Is that right? Um, imagine Sisyphus happy. Imagine Sisyphus happy. Give me tonight to be inconsolable so the death drive does not declare itself, so the moonlight does not convince sunrise. I was born before sunrise, when morning masquerades as night, the temperature of blood, quivering like a mouth in mourning. How do we author our gentle birth, the height we were? Were we gods rolling stars across a sundog sky? the same as scarabs. We fit somewhere between God and mineral, angel and animal, believing a thing as sacred as the sun rises and falls like an ordinary beast. Deer sniff lifeless fawns before leaving. 
Elephants encircle the skulls and tusks of their dead, none wanting to leave the bones behind, none knowing their leave will lessen the loss. But birds pluck their own feathers. Dogs lick themselves to wound. Allow me this luxury. Give me tonight to cut and salt the open. Give me a shovel to uproot the mandrake and listen for its scream. Give me a face that toils so closely with stone, it is itself stone. I promise to enter the flesh again. I promise to circle, to ascend. I promise to be happy tomorrow. All right, this next poem is called Virginia is for Lovers, but I just want to quickly read the note at the book's back. So this poem shares its title with the tourism and travel slogan of the Commonwealth of Virginia, as the word legend in the poem is meant to imply the racist rhetoric of the settler myth. The speaker is not aligning herself with nor promoting a culture that gives rise to racism and white supremacy. Now to the poem. Virginia is for lovers. At Latoya's pride picnic, Leonard tells me he and his longtime love, Pete, broke up. He says Pete gave him the house in Virginia. Great, I say, that's the least his ass could do. I daydream my friend and me into his new house, sit us in the kitchen of his three bedroom, two bath, brick colonial, outside hungry mother park, where, legend has it, the Shawnee raided settlements with the wherewithal of wild children catching pigeons. A woman and her androgynous child escaped, wandering the wilderness, stuffing their mouths with the bark of choke cherry root. Such was the circumstance under which the woman collapsed. The child, who could say nothing except hungry mother, led help to the mountain where the woman lay, swelling as wood swells in humid air. Leonard's mouth is moving. Two boys hit a shuttlecock back and forth across an invisible net. A toddler struggles to pull her wagon from a sandbox. No, Leonard says, it's not a place where you live. I got the H in V. H-I before my friend could finish and as if he'd been newly ordained. I took his hands and kissed them. Um, okay, I think I'll just read two more, I think. Okay, this next one is titled Unframed. It's tiny. Handle this body. Spoil it with oils. Let the residue corrode, ruin it. I have no finish, no fragile edge. On what scrap of me have we not made desire paths so tried as to bury ourselves therein? I beg, spare me gloved hands, monuments to nothing. I mean to die a relief against every wall. I lied, maybe I'll read two more. I think I have time. I do, right? Yeah, okay. So I'm gonna read um, parts or all of this poem called Cento for the Night I Said I Love You, and a cento is a poem made up of lines by other people. Um, usually, or traditionally rather, it's a hundred lines long. This one is a hundred lines long. So I'll read some of that and then end with um, a poem from my husband. 
Cento for the night I said I love you. Today, gentle reader, is as good a place to start. But you knew that, didn't you? Then let us give ourselves over to the noise of a great scheme that included everything, that indicts everything. Let us roam the night together in an attempt to catch the stars that drop. White clouds against sky come humming toward me, one closely resembling the beginning of a miracle. There's the moonlight on a curved path lighting the purple flowers of fragrant June. I dreamed him, and there he was, silent as destiny, lit by a momentary match. Men are so clueless sometimes, like startled fish living just to live. We are dying quickly, but behave as good guests should, patiently allowing the night to have the last word. And I just don't know, you know? I never had a whole lot to say while talking to strange men. What allows some strangers to go past strangeness, exchanging yearning for permanence? And who wouldn't come back to bed? Love, how free we are, how bound, put here in love's name, called John, a name so common as a name sung quietly from somewhere, like a cry abandoned someplace in a city about which I know. Like blackbirds pushing against glass, I didn't hold myself back. I gave in completely and went all the way to the vague influence of the distant stars. I saw something like an angel spread across the horizon like some dreadful prophecy, refusing to be contained to accept limits. She said, are you sure you know what you're doing? I love you, I say, desperate to admit that the flesh extends its vanity to an unknown land where all the wild swarm. This is not death. It is something safer, almost made of air. I think they call it God. Some say we're lucky to be alive, to have a sky that stays there, above. And I suppose I would have to agree, but the hell with that. It isn't ordinary. The way the world unravels from a distance can look like pain, eager as penned in horses. And it came to pass that meaning faltered, came detached. I learned my name was not my name. I was not myself. Myself resembles something else that had nothing to do with me, except I am again the child with too many questions as old as light. I am always learning the same thing. One day, all this will only be memory. One day soon, for no good reason. Dying is simple. The body relaxes inside hysterical light as someone drafts an elegy in a body too much alive. Love is like this, not a heartbeat, but a moan. And it goes on, but I should finish with this poem for my husband is called Object Permanence. And his name is John. We wake as if surprised the other is still there, each petting the sheet to be sure. How have we managed our way to this bed, beholden to heat like dawn, indebted to light? Though we're not so self-important as to think everything has led to this, everything has led to this. There's a name for the animal love makes of us, named, I think, like rain for the sound it makes. You are the animal after whom other animals are named. Until there's none left to laugh, days will start with the same startle, 
and end with caterpillars gorged on milkweed. Oh, how we entertain the angels with our brief animation. Oh, how I'll miss you when we're dead. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole, for that amazing reading. And we'll go straight in to our second reader this afternoon. Our second reader this afternoon is Kevin Young. Kevin Young is a poet, essayist, children's book author, editor, and curator. He's the author of 13 collections of poetry, three books of nonfiction, one children's picture book, as well as the editor of nine volumes of poetry, ranging from poets like John Berryman and Lucille Clifton to thematic volumes on grief and healing and hunger. In the New York Times, David Orr describes Kevin's resume as star-spangled, and star-spangled it is indeed. His first book, Most Way Home, was winner of the National Poetry Series and Zachariah First Book Award. Stones, his most recent book, and the first collection published by a UK publisher, was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. Between 13 books of poetry, he's been longlisted multiple times for the National Book Award, a finalist for the National Book Award and Los Angeles Times Book Prize. He's been a finalist for the King's Tuffley, Kingsley Tufts Award, a winner of the Lenore Marshall Prize for Poetry from the American Academy of Poets, and a winner of an American Book Award. And that's just for his poetry. Regarding his nonfiction work, he's been a finalist for the National Books Critics Circle Award and Penn Jean Stein Book Award, winner of the Annisfield Wolf Book Award in nonfiction, winner of, winner of the Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize, and winner of the Penn Open Book Award. If that list alone does not spangle you, Kevin Young is also the director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, DC, where now I know is where he lives. And he is the poetry editor at The New Yorker. If Kevin's awards and honors are anything like stars sewn onto a flag, then the background they are pressed against is the deep penetrating blue of Kevin's poetic voice. Though the colors of brown, gray, and black appear throughout Kevin's title, titles, blue feels the most encompassing when thinking about his work, or perhaps sensing it, as though when the spectrum of colors combined, they blended not into white or black, but something of the hue Kevin's sonic intelligence leaves on the ear. Blue Laws, published in 2016, a selection of poems from 20 years of writing, was long listed for the National Book Award and named on the New York Times 10 Best Poetry Titles of 2016. Of Blue Laws, Harper Magazine said this, Blue Laws tells a story about how history has been written on African-American bodies and imagines the voices that have spoken back. Young is a relaxed lyricist, precise without being precious, and he expresses enormous feeling with great economy. End quote. Young is a master of high affect juxtaposition. I say high affect, which is an Africanist dance aesthetic, to invoke, invoke the tethering to body I often feel reading Kevin's poems. In Ode to Scars from his 2008 collection, Dear Darkness, he says, soon I will be simply that skin darkening. And a little later, no nicks at first, my hands now mostly these, scraps and seams, skin which weeps like kin when parting. Melancholy pervades these poems, but it's a melancholy that, as black feminist theorist Sarah Clark, Sarah Clark Kaplan has it, is not only a private backward-looking phenomenon of psychic conflict, but also an embodied individual and collective psychic practice with the potential to transform grief into the articulation of grievances that traverse continents and time. In the Book of Hours, a book where hours are shorter than seconds and simultaneously longer than years, the title poem declares, it's death there's no cure for, life the long disease, if we're lucky. 
And in the final line of the poem, a Jungian, not to be confused with Carl Jung, a Jungian upwards pitch, not necessarily towards hope, but towards song. Why not sing, the poem concludes, remaining light on its feet, reminding us that the dread of truth need not be truth itself. I think Kevin Young's body of work stands up to these tests of traversing continents and time. One of my favorite progressions from his poems is this. Love is strange and almost always too late. It is not too late. In fact, it is the perfect moment this afternoon to fall in love with Kevin Young's poems. Please join me in welcoming Kevin Young. Thanks for that great introduction. Um, and thank you all for coming out and thanks for uh, Ledbury all around. It's been really wonderful. I've just been here a day or so, but it's been really special. I'm going to read mostly from Stones, and it's really a pleasure to read with Nicole. Uh, as she said, it's been a few years. Um, since that time, I did an anthology of African American poetry, and she's one of the stellar voices of now and the future. I'm mostly going to read from Stones, as I mentioned, uh, which is a book that takes place chiefly in Louisiana, uh, where my family's from, and in the southern US. So it was sort of strange for it to be the first British book. It feels very American in that way. But there's a lot of um, uh, place in the poems, but also a lot of yearning. The first poem, uh, poem I'll read is called Halter. Halter. Nothing can make make me want to stay in this world. Not the grass with its head of hair turning gray, not the way, uh, sway back horse in the field. I swear I almost saw start to saunter. Nor the bent shadows late in the day drawing close. The neighbor's boat not yet docked, gathering snow. Not the dream with the moose hunched in its crown, shedding velvet led by a silver halter through the shaded campground, a shawl over its shoulders like a caftan on a grandmother or her rocker whenever she's no longer there. Not the brass nail heads on the Adirondack chair I put together sweating this morning that creaks but still does hold, nor the cries of the others above water, beloved bright voices of summer echoing like the ice cream man in his whirring truck. Along the curb, his lights flash like an ambulance, playing the tune you cannot name yet know, except this babbling like a light barely shining from below the baby's cracked door. So this poem, uh, and a lot of the poems circle uh, my father passing away and dying uh, a number of years ago and this pilgrimage back to Louisiana. Um, but this is a poem more about sort of the aftermath of that. Hum. I am learning how to sleep again, to love the descent, or is it lying here, arising up to summit where sleep wanders till waking? And when I cannot, when the water leaches into everything and capsizes me, I wonder where you are, Father, if anywhere at all. Does sleep know you? Does day? Such nights. Dreams fill my waking, and worry weathers the dark, the light horribly leaking through the curtains. Or awake early. I wait for it to seep in from the east, the land of dead in the west, the hum of sun, none, none. Then suddenly up, it too cannot be sated or slaked off. Brother, sun, mother, moon, father you cannot find, though somewhere still shines. This poem's called Egrets, um, which as you know are beautiful birds, and in Louisiana especially, um, my family's 
uh, a lot of them farm still and um, were farmers for generations. Um, they, you know, hang out around the cows. So this poem thinks about that. Egrets. Some say beauty may be the egret in the field who follows after the cows, sensing slaughter. But I believe the soul is neither air nor water. This winged thing, not this winged thing, nor the cattle who moan to make themselves known. Instead, the horses standing almost 15 hands high. Like regret, they come most of the time when called. Hungry, the greys eat from your palm, tender-toothed. Their surprising plum-dark tongues flashing quick and rough as a match. Striking your hand, your arm startled into flame. So in Louisiana, there are um, two graveyards that um, hold most of my kin. I was just there, uh, gosh, last month, um, because my grandmother turned 99 years old. So we all gathered to celebrate that. Um, and I was there with my son, who is in some of these poems, but he's an infant then, and now he's 15. He's not in this poem, but just to let you know. This is called dog tags, which, as you may know, are the names for um, the things soldiers will wear around their necks. They're called dog tags. Uh, my father was in the army, and um, I inherited some of his. Dog tags. Of us, there is always less. The days hammer past, artificial daisies at the grave. Words I didn't choose from my father's headstone and those that came instead to live around my neck. Dog tags a tin pendulum on my chest. On my mother's side, my cousin, too young, dirt a pile above her, but no stone, nothing but the tin foil name from the funeral home. The fresh plastic flowers that still wilt in this heat. At Blackjack, she lost everything. My great aunt and uncle had saved. Even their low ranch, where I first knew blue glass, plastic covering the rug, and the good couch in the sitting room that no one dared sit. The prickly underside of the clear runner, a cactus you couldn't help but touch. Uncle Wilmer's pickup, long paid off, now stares empty under somebody else's tree. The liars and book cookers came with their knives, offering her seconds, and she ate and ate. Once you've tasted the stone-filled fruit of the underworld, you may never return. They took everything from her, my mother says, both of us shaking our heads, disbelieving how exacting death is, how deep the shade, except breath. She was in debt and dead within a year, went through money like water, and that didn't last long either. This has my son in it. It's called Lilies. Almost June, yet the blooms are already done. Here among my grandfather and foremothers and my father, planted too early, we miss you, brother. He will not see another May, whose colors fiery surround us, and now him will not know his grandson and namesake ever since cruel April stole him. Father, never will you know how words blossom from my son this Memorial Day, visiting your stone. Hot, up, more, more, he sings. The lilies we leave will tip over in wind near your name. My son doesn't yet know, though it's his own. There's a bit of drinking in this book. 
this one's called Blackout, though it's not a blackout trunk or anything. It's a literal blackout. Okay, a blackout. In the bar, the drunks are tender as mourners, talking low, rubbing each other's backs like a grave, gathered here to grieve what all they managed to leave. This hour, at least, the beer is happy and nearly free. Wednesday, well drinks half off. These are sorrows, regulars, where once electricity out, up south, I headed to find the cause, beer warming slow on the tap, not yet the hand. Rumors of explosions of smoke from a manhole swirled, too dead. Turns out it wasn't that at all, only the heat, heat wave washing ashore. The bar's bell still tolls, tip jar full of soggy bills the barkeep undertakes to count later, slowly knowing what can't be held. Still alive, like the wine, we can't help but try. This is called tonsure, which as you know, is when um, a monk like will cut their hair into a, just the top of their hair bald. My father kind of had that naturally. So this is called tonsure. Forever you find your father in other faces, a balding head or beard enough to send you following for blocks after to make sure you're wrong, or buying some stranger a beer to share, well, not just one. And here, among a world that mends only the large things, let the shadow grow upon your face till you feel at home. It's all yours, this father you make each day, the one you became when yours got yanked away. Take your place between the men bowed at the bar, the beer warming, glowing faint as a heart, lit from within and just a hint bitter. All right, I'll read um, this poem, which is uh, called Sandy Road. Uh, in the part of Louisiana I'm from, where my family's from, um, especially in my father's side, it's very dirt roads and family as far as you can see. And this poem sort of describes that. Uh, sandy Road is actually um, not sandy, though it's dirt, um, but it's named for a person named Sandy. Sandy Road. The roads here only lately got names. Before, we lived on rural route blank. The mailbox far enough away across the field, it was worth a trek only once a week to find out what the world had to say. Its metal mouth a garfish, few found. No streets, just this rushing stream after a hard rain. Today, the roads remain, mostly ditch water and dirt, small stones that migrate, but never far. Today, my auntie complains the roads were named for grandnieces born yesterday who didn't do nothing. Instead of after great-grandfathers and others who cut their way back here by hand and hatchet, wheelbarrow and know-how, trucking even daylight in. These are our saints, our Emiles and Adams and Banans who made these roads right as rain. We still live in their straightaways, and curves, slowly buying back what so-and-so's foolishness fretted away. Once the whole doggone world was young, once there were no words for things, and people had to wait among the green and listen first, making sure the things themselves, the very stones, would tell you what they wished to be named. Russet. I want to drink the day down. Maybe next, the night. First we'll find our feet, our feet the floor. The blue beyond the window returns like a mother after work, collapsing into the living room. I'm home. 
I'm done being in love with what leaves. Autumn gathers in the trees, russet, and tries not to fall asleep on the cold ground. God, it is hard being happy if you try. Instead, be like this slow yellow. Let go. I'll end with some new poems. Um, the next book I've been working on um, has a few sequences and ends with a long sequence uh, that refers to Dante, sort of um, triangulated through Robert Rauschenberg, the artist who painted um, portraits based on Dante's Inferno after hearing John Ciardi's translations um, read to him canto by canto. So these cantos um, kind of riff off that. It just so happened I grew up with Ciardi's translation, which is very like hippy-dippy, which I love, if you know it. This is Noli Me Tanger, do not touch me. The dead want us to want them, lovers of what isn't there. Or is that us? Leaning close, infidels of the world's invisible, unliving long train. The dead, wedded to this world, vow beneath a veil. In the mirror, we meet the dead each morning, shaving, say. We rake our faces of yesterday, or darken our eyes in order to leave out the house. When we smile, the dead smile back. Sorry, the dead nod back. When we laugh, the dead don't seem to mind. Tonight, the lost rise with the moon above the mountain. A stone rolled back from the tomb, the body stolen of its soul, the blind world or whirlwind. In daylight, see it list in the sky, sometimes the moon, ghostly eye, great unremembered rock, bare mirror where we cannot breathe. Underworld. Circle three. We are born with all our grief already in us, like teeth. And time works it out of us, our mouths. Pain for a time, and then there grief sits forever, shiny, lucky. Pomegranate. Made before I was unmade. If not the gaps where once our milk teeth sat, replaced by these holes we hope to eat with, each supper a reckoning. Doing all right? Good. Problem with the new book is it's, where is it? Okay. This is called Beyond. It's circle eight for those who are following along. What if the body is what we bring with us beyond? It is the soul stays here, sullen, inconsolable, not so much wandering as waiting to be found, reunited, dirtied in the end. It is enough then to see the soul let loose only in those moments of ecstasy, not when we leave our body, but when our body arrives finally and our soul sups, fed like the dead, hands hungry as stray gloves. Fingers may fill them, but still they need the noun of the soul, the soul's smell, its plangent personhood. The more they eat, the more they need. The body always becoming, who verbs its way over and under while the soul rocks in the old folks' home. The soul who shivers, grown suddenly cold. I'm gonna skip ahead to uh, a little bit of purgatory and then maybe we'll end with some paradise. This is called docent. And it has two parts, docent. Night watch. 
You can fall in love in a museum, but only with the art or its silence. Or the stranger you don't mean to follow, suffering past the old masters and the unnamed servants. Rembrandt's face half in shadow, you can fall for what isn't there already, or with the 13th century, the swan raising up, roosters hung upside down to die on a cross. Even the tourists gathered round the docent, the same jokes and half-truths loom beautiful. The children crying hurried out of sight. Forget the night watch, the crowds. Instead, follow the quiet to the portraits of light entering a room. These walls, few windows, hold the world. What the world couldn't say till someone saw it first. And now it's everywhere, the braids of that woman's hair. Self-portrait with felt hat. One should never be in love when in a museum. Better to be alone, if not utterly, than practically. Tired of feet and routine, forge ahead beyond the bounds of audio tours and family isolate. Avoid this couple oblivious to it all. The captions and arrows kissing like no tomorrow besides Van Gogh's sunflowers. Bruised chartreuse brilliant and wilting for years, yet never managing to. Skip holding hands and Gauguin's portrait of Van Gogh painting what he saw. The crows gather like clouds, black were the crowds, that the couple doesn't care about, numb to all else. Best believe in the world more than yourself. Uh, and as was mentioned, I, I edited a book of Berryman poems. And John Berryman, the wonderful American poet who spent time here and in Ireland. Um, and this is uh, a poem about him before his suicide, which it mentions. It's called St. Mary's. Dried out like a flower. Berryman spends his hours in bed revising, addressing poems to the Lord. In this, his latest stint in recovery, swallowing AA, finally, he's drinking less, a cactus. Kate's last wife worries, tears open wishes with her finger, get well soon. This living thing of his writing, he nurses like a wound. His beard Whitman's, the deathbed, addition. Even his bones he names Mr. like a skeleton in science class. Talks to and the plants. Berman plays the blues brought here from home. The LPs grooves scratch and itch he can't quite reach. Out there in the cold, the bridge he'll find and fling himself from, beckoning. His glasses soon broken He'll first fold carefully, dark wings. And I'll end with this poem. Thanks again for coming out. It's always a pleasure to see you. This poem is called Rapture. Like I said, I promised you a teeny bit of paradise. Rapture. I want to be awake when the world ends. I want to be my friend who rose to an empty house, even his grandmother and her worn cross gone, and thought it was the rapture that he hadn't crossed over. Let me rip my shirt as he did and tear into the street, hollering. Let me hear only my blood beat this morning among the rain before the dawn. No one on the line. Later, when they return, let those I love who left have only gone to the store, running errands, this errant, unebbing life. After, let what I've torn, the myself I mourn, be mended and start over like a scar 
or star. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. Um, that line, tears open wishes with her fingers, that, oof, I don't, that's haunting me still to this moment. And thank you, Nicole, um, for the reading you gave earlier. Can we just get one more round of applause for them, too? Yes.